Good afternoon, and thank you so much for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. We are starting the show talking about something that's going to be happening a little bit later on today. Survivors of the Winters Hotel fire, which took place a year ago, and with the group Our Homes Can't Wait Coalition, are going to be holding a memorial and a news conference a bit later today, talking more about a class action lawsuit against Atira, against the city of Vancouver, and against the Winters residents. But we are going to be talking about that now. Jamie Thornback is joining us. He is the lawyer representing the survivors in this class action suit. And Jamie is on the line with us now. Thank you so much for making some time today. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, can you explain a little bit about this class action and, and what the details of the class action are? Um, sure. So there, there was a fire at the Winters Hotel on April 11th of last year that uh, destroyed the hotel, killed two people and um, caused uh, a lot of harm to all of the residents who were there, both in terms of injuries and uh, property loss. Um, so this class action we've filed uh, on behalf of a proposed class uh, to um, get proper uh, compensation and, and justice for, for their losses as a result of that fire. Uh, you mentioned uh, the, the fatalities. We know there were two to f- uh, fatalities in this fire. Uh, I know the class action, as it's filed, is, is naming one resident. Is the hope so that others will join the class action suit, or how will that work? So the way a class action works is you don't actually have to have everybody join it in order to be part of it. One person files the claim on behalf of a proposed class, and then we have to go to the court and get the court to approve that class as well as some other things. And then everybody who meets the class definition is automatically going to be a part of the class. Um, and so that would include the residents, the families of, of those who were killed and visitors who were there at the time of the fire, uh, assuming the court approves all of those. All right. The uh, the lawsuit itself, it names Atira Property Management, Atira Development Society, the Atira Women's Resource Society, which are groups that are all very, very closely linked. It also names the City of Vancouver Fire and Rescue Services, as well as the Winters residents. Uh, in the, the class action, I know it goes into great detail on uh, saying things that were missing from that hotel, such as uh, paying attention to warnings, tickets for fire safety violations, that people in that hotel weren't treated uh, with the urgency, that the conditions in the hotel weren't taken seriously. Does it put the blame or does it does it suggest that, that the blame uh, is equally shared between the groups that are named or how does that work? Um, well, well, whether the blame is equally shared or split into uh, unequal shares will uh, depend on a lot of things. And uh, part of that is what we learn in the lawsuit, exactly what different groups knew and uh, why certain things did or didn't happen. So certainly there are allegations that the city knew a lot of the problems and um, wasn't on top of them in the way that they should be. And, and likewise, uh, Tira and Winters, I mean, this is a situation where there was a fire three days earlier before before they went on April 11th, and uh, no fire safety systems were uh, fixed between the two fires. So there were no fire alarms, no sprinkler systems, and uh, there weren't even fire extinguishers that residents could use to uh, extinguish the fire on the 11th as a result of everything being down for, for three days. Uh, it also uh, talks about the fact that fire exits were locked or obstructed 
in some cases. And like you said, because of that fire a couple of days earlier, uh, the, the, the sprinkler service hadn't been serviced, that, that things were not back up. And, and in place to, to keep that building safe. Uh, it also goes into great detail on, on what some of the residents lost. Uh, in one case, uh, a resident whose pet cat uh, that meant so much to her uh, didn't make it out, uh, people losing all of their possessions uh, and everything everything that they owned. Uh, how much does that come into it when, when we're talking about a class action lawsuit? Um, so a class action proceeds in two stages. The first is common issues, and then the second is individual issues. Uh, a lot of the damages that people suffered are going to be in that individual phase of the lawsuit. And they don't have to come forward immediately if they want to participate, but if they do want us to understand their individual losses and give us the best opportunity to make arguments to recover uh, whatever they did loss, then uh, they can get in touch with us. And then at the appropriate time, we can advance those arguments uh, with the defendants in the court. And uh, we know uh, that the hotel was destroyed, and the lawsuit uh, mentions this as well, that, that people were displaced. In many cases, they, they didn't have other housing for several days, and they were kind of left with nothing. Uh, what are you hoping, or, or it, when we talk about the general damages or, or what this, this lawsuit hopes to accomplish, uh, is it set out, or is, is there a general idea on, on what the residents, what those who, who may be part of this are hoping to accomplish? Um, well, I, I can speak generally that there are really two major goals. One is fair compensation for uh, everyone who was affected by it. And like I said, that fair compensation will depend on their individual circumstances. So we can't say exactly what that is at this stage. Uh, but the other, I think, larger point uh, out, outside of individual compensation is uh, is really justice and, and making sure that the defendants um, are, are shown uh, how how they were responsible uh, for what happened, uh, and, and hopefully that that will have an impact uh, in the future in terms of um, fire safety in, in SROs and, and the approach that the defendants and hopefully others uh, take to ensuring that um, buildings like this are kept safe uh, rather than um, flying under the radar. Yeah, and I was I was curious about that because even though this is focused on the Winters Hotel and what happened specifically at that hotel, uh, do you think this could, if this does go forward, could this have an impact on fire safety, on the condition of other SROs? Um, certainly that's the hope. Uh, certainly uh, there, there is a hope that this will bring attention to issues in, in other SROs and, and make sure people responsible for them are on top of fire safety. The lawsuit itself, of course, can't address any of that directly. It can only address what happened at the winters, uh, but um, lessons can be learned by others uh, as a result of this. And this is being filed a year after that fire took place. Uh, is there something specific or is there a reason for the, the timing? And, and what do you anticipate is going to be happening next as far as a timeline? Um, I, I'd say that there are, are two things related to the timing. Uh, one is practical and, and then the other is symbolic on, on the practical side. Um, it did definitely take residents some time to get in touch with lawyers, uh, with, with my firm, who were able to, to represent them. Um, and, and that's not surprising. It can be hard to access justice in many cases. Um, and then after that, we had to do a fair bit of work and research to have the uh, case ready to go. So those are on the practical side. And, and on the symbolic side, well, 
filing it on on the one year uh, anniversary. Um, there is a memorial taking place today, and, and it is empowering um, for residents to know that the legal system will hopefully be working for them in, in this case and uh, helping them achieve justice. All right. Jamie Thornback, thank you so much for joining us and for walking us through this class action lawsuit. I appreciate your time today. Uh, thank you very much. Have a good afternoon. We were just chatting with Jamie Thornback. He is the lawyer representing the survivors of the 2022 Winters Hotel fire in that class action lawsuit. Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Janice Abbott, the CEO of the Atira Women's Resource Society. Janice, thank you so much for joining us and talking more about this today. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you. Uh, there are a lot of, of background points in this lawsuit and a lot of allegations about where Atira uh, didn't have fire safety systems in this hotel, ignored uh, some very big shortcomings when it comes to keeping residents safe. I'm curious what your response to that is. So, um with apologies, this is not what I was um, told this interview would be about. And we actually haven't received a copy of the lawsuit. So I haven't seen it. Um, and I'm un- unable to comment on without having reviewed it. Oh, okay. No, uh, absolutely. Were you aware, though, that this lawsuit was being filed? Uh, not until I read it in the paper last night. All right. But you haven't actually seen a copy yet? No, we haven't. We haven't been served with anything. Okay. Um, Are you able to talk even about uh, what has happened to those that were displaced because of this fire and if they've been able to find other housing? Uh, Yeah, I can say that um, in the, uh, within about three weeks of the the fire, we had opened Tawau at 303 Columbia Street, uh, which is a 72 unit SRO. And right now there are, um, I believe, about 55 winter's tenants, former winter's tenants living at Tawau. Um, other tenants have gone to um, seniors' housing. So we had a, a, a number of uh, tenants who were seniors who went into um, affordable seniors' housing in other parts of Vancouver. Um, and some tenants are living in other SROs. And have there been changes made to SROs as far as safety and making sure that, that they are safer? Uh <laughs> That's a big question. Um, we continue to have uh, fires in our SROs, um, not just at Tira's SROs, but in SROs across the downtown east side. Um, I think I read at one point that the uh, Vancouver Fire and Rescue Services said they were responding to one fire in the downtown east side every day. Um, so, uh, and this, this seems to me to be um, more fires than we were experiencing, say, two or three years ago or five years ago. Uh, we did see a reduction in the number of fires in our all-gender buildings last year, so by, I think, about uh, 37%, um, but it increased uh, by almost the same amount in our women-only buildings. Uh, we don't know what that means yet, that they're only, only numbers or data at this time. So, um, you know, we, we actually responded to three fires this past weekend, um, so, so fires continue to happen, um, and uh, and they're a problem that we're going to have to all uh, come to grips with because they don't seem to be slowing down. 
We talked to the the fire chief on this show last week, and she she mentioned those numbers as well, saying that there have been more than 200 fires uh, in SROs in this past year. I know she mentioned electronic uh, charging in some cases, certainly not all of the fires, but charging electronic devices. Uh, are there, and, and she also mentioned that there, there have been many, many times when these types of buildings have been inspected and they've failed inspection, but there hasn't been a follow-up, but there hasn't been uh, that work done to bring things up to code. Uh, Is that something that needs to be addressed? Well, there are a number of issues in the SRO. So the short answer is yes. Um, And there are a number of issues in the SROs that um, get in the way of um, get in the way of sort of state of the art fire uh, life and safety systems. The the buildings are old. Um, We're we're dealing with uh, in some of the SROs that um, were renovated in 2013-2014, we're dealing with a third-party contractor that's responsible for the fire suppression systems. Um, So we're not able to deal with them ourselves. This applies to some of the tiers buildings as well as some other um, nonprofits who have um, those uh, renovated SROs. Um, We also have... um, uh, people who have experienced profound trauma, who are living in poverty, who are watching their friends die and have been watching their friends die, friends and family die since 2016 um, during the opioid, or so, so when the opioid crisis started, or the opi- opioid poisoning crisis. And so all of that trauma um, in old buildings, uh, so there, there are constant um, uh, damage to fire doors and automatic door closers and smoke alarms that are dismantled um, and, and not enough resources to address them um, in, a, in a significant way. And with what's happening right now as well, and I know the, the mayor was speaking this morning on Mornings with Simi and said that that is going to continue and talking about the clearing of tents as they come back to part of East Hastings in that neighborhood. Uh, have you noticed an increase in, and I know there are a lot of people that were living there saying that part of the reason they were living on the street was because of the conditions in SROs, uh, but have you noticed an increase or what, what kind of, of push has that put on the resources of your, yeah. your organization? Well, I think one of the, I, I, I don't think we'll really start to see the impact of the clearing of tents um, for, you know, a couple of days, a couple of weeks even. Um, I think one of the things that happens is often um, people who, who have the least, so people living in SROs, um, the burden is on them to look after people who have been living on the streets. So we'll see um, more of our tenants with um, guests, overnight guests, which also adds strain and stress to old buildings, obviously. Um, we've also seen an increase in the number of women uh, seeking support at uh, at Betty's Boutique and at our uh, 101 uh, support office. I'm, I'm sure that the Downtown Eastside Women's Centre wish uh, um, organizations like um, those have also experienced an increase in requests for support. Um, and we, you know, we didn't, we got about an hour's notice of the um, clearing of Hastings Street last week, so we're all still trying to grapple with what this means um, means for the people, uh, for our tenants and for the people who were cleared, and also for organizations. All right. Well, Janice, thank you so much. Uh, I do appreciate you coming on and talking more about this. Uh, we'll continue uh, to follow along with what is happening, but I do appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thanks, Jill.
Well, we talked about this on the show yesterday after a release on Friday where Vancouver police sent out some information on the current policy when it comes to handcuffing people. And according to police, this is a new policy, although it's been in place for some time. The details were just released and it follows strategic improvements when it comes to the use of handcuffs. Officers now have to consider if handcuffs are appropriate given the circumstances of the ongoing incident. They also have have to take into account the age of the suspect, any disabilities, medical conditions, injuries, size, and ethnicity. And officers who use force will also be legally responsible for their actions and cannot view handcuffing as a routine action. And officers must able also be able to explain why handcuffs are being used. Well, this all comes after two high-profile cases. One, where a retired justice was handcuffed in a case of mistaken identity while police were looking for a suspect. The other, as you will recall, took place outside of a bank in Vancouver where a grandfather and his granddaughter were handcuffed after they were trying to set up a bank account. Well, that grandfather, Maxwell Jones, is joining us now to talk more about his thoughts about the policy change. Thank you so much for taking some time with us. No problem. I know we've talked to you about this before and uh, about uh, what happened outside that bank and what's happened since then. Uh, I was curious your thoughts now that the Vancouver Police Department have released the new policy. It seems like the policy has been in place for quite some time, but they've just released the details when it comes to a change on their handcuffing policy. Uh, I'm curious your thoughts on that. Um, I'm glad they finally released uh released it but uh it would have been really nice if they consulted with uh our nation and um other people of color about the uh, handcuffing policy right because looking at this and and certainly we've talked to you in the past about this so we've we've talked to Justin Selwyn Romilly and 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 your case with your granddaughter and the case of the retired justice are are often put forward as the two high profile cases that actually did lead to these changes uh, what are your thoughts on the fact that that what happened to you and your granddaughter uh, did help lead to this policy change well, first of all, it shouldn't have happened, you know. Um, being a person of color, it's a hard life to live because we get um, looked upon all the time. It doesn't matter what what organization or which store we go into, we're followed in there uh, just because of the color of our skin. And for them to take this long to change the um, policy about handcuffing, you know, it should have been done a long time ago. I think a lot of people have been uh, um, handcuffed for no reason, you know. It, um, they said that, one of the things they said that uh, they handcuffed my granddaughter because they were scared of the, for their own safety. You know, they, sh- they should learn how to um, read the situation and make sure, you know, we were the threat. We were nice and calm and everything, and um, having not done that, done to us wasn't right at all and I think there needs to be more to be done when there's a situation that we were in. And you're right, you make an excellent point that shouldn't have happened and I think anybody that saw the video that has has followed along and paid attention to what happened to you and your granddaughter are, are quite horrified that that did happen at all. 
Um, do you think that, that it will change, though, as far as we were talking as well yesterday with Terry TG about this, and he made the point saying it's great that Vancouver police are putting forward this new policy, but it really needs to be all police departments and all law enforcement that are paying attention to this. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, it's not only the Vancouver Police Department, but, you know, every police station across Canada should be doing this, um, you know, it's just something that I, I truly believe in. You know, it's 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 got to be done because not everybody's uh, not everybody's can be as calm, and you know they just got to read the situation more, and you know make sure that nobody's a threat to them or ourselves. You know. Right. And, and Maxwell, I know I've asked you this before and kind of the incident and what happened with, with you and your granddaughter being handcuffed. Uh, how is your granddaughter doing now as far as obviously remembering that happening? But, but does it help, do you think, her as well, knowing that this policy has changed, that, that it's not something that, that just went away, that there, there has been action taken? Uh, I haven't talked to her about the the policy being released now or coming out, I haven't talked to her about it, but when I talk to my son and my granddaughter about our next step with VPD and those two officers, uh, my granddaughter gets pretty choked up about it. Uh, she just wants everything to be over now. It would have been all over and done with if those two officers came up and did the apology ceremony because we have a customs that we live by and Having an apology ceremony closes the circle for us, but they didn't come up, so the circle's not closed yet, so we're not completely healed. Right. And and even though the police chief was there, it wasn't the same, I guess, not having the two officers? No. No. Uh, the, those, because when the incident, something like this happens, like it traumatizes us and... We have to have closure, and everybody that was involved in the incident has to be there at the at the ceremony. So uh, having those two officers not there didn't close it. So, right. So, what do you do then if 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 you don't get that apology from those specific officers? Is there another way to potentially to to move forward from this? Uh, we're still in talks with our lawyers and we're figuring out what we're going to do next because they didn't show up. Right. So it's still ongoing, so I really can't get into it right now. Sure, that that makes sense. Uh, looking at the policy as well, though, and what talks about things that, as, that officers have to really consider if handcuffs are appropriate. They have to consider things such as the suspect's age, uh, injuries, size, ethnicity. Uh, they have to be able to explain why handcuffs were used. Uh, do you think if that policy had been in place, would that perhaps have changed how things happened to you and your granddaughter? I think so, because uh, because then the uh, when they finally released the nine one one call, they said my granddaughter was between uh, fifteen and sixteen years old, and they said we were South Asian and white. So having that policy in place long ago would have benefited not only us but the two officers too. 
Right. And and one other thing that we were asking about as well, and it was the the idea of, of more, perhaps more Indigenous representation on police forces, on, on the front lines, as well as the use of body cameras for situations where there's a different take on what happened. Do you think those things would also be good measures or positive measures? Yeah, I think so. I... I was thinking of that before, you know, if they had uh, body cameras, it would have been a lot easier to to deal with what happened to us. And having all officers trained in uh, about First Nations um, culture and that, you know, awareness of uh, First Nations people. Because it's hard being stereotyped every time we go out anywhere. And I live in a small community, and we do have uh, some racism here with uh, professionals that come into our community. Right, and is that changing, or or do you see see people realizing that that that's yeah, not okay? It's changing. Uh, it's changing once they get they get to know us and you know how we live our lives. Like we live in two two worlds. We live in the. Um, European world and we live in our world because some of us are, a lot of us are into our, our culture. We brought it back to life and a lot of us are still learning about it. We try and encourage the younger people to get involved in their culture and everything. Well, it sounds as well, like you said, that, that this isn't completely done for you and your granddaughter uh, as you continue uh, hoping or, or, or seeing what happens with the, the apology. Uh, Maxwell, we'll leave it there for today, though. But uh, as always, appreciate you taking some time to talk more about this. Okay, yeah, no problem. Well, it is the definite start of the cruise season with the Sapphire Princess arriving today, and that is arriving in Canadian waters. Joining us to talk about what we can expect this cruise season is Robert Lewis Manning, the CEO of the Greater Victoria Harbour Authority. Thank you so much for taking some time. Not a problem. Thanks, Joe. Uh, I know we talked about this a lot, the hiatus, like so many things, cruise ships also were docked during the pandemic. Uh, what is it like having the ships back? I know it's not the first time, but what is it like having the ships back? Well, I think there's a, a real sense of excitement. Um, the cruise lines are having a strong demand, especially in the Pacific Northwest, Alaska, Canada trades. So, um, today's a, a pretty big day. Uh, first ship in Victoria, first ship in Canada. And can you talk a bit about the economic spin-offs and why this industry is so important? Well, here in Victoria, it's a, every summer it's about $143 million uh, economic benefit directly into the city. And I think there's the spin-offs are really um, quite significant. We, we know that a lot of first-time visitors to Victoria and probably elsewhere in Canada like to return. So um, they'll come back for a vacation or a conference. So we're, we're really optimistic that um, we're, we're going to give them a great experience and they're going to want to come back in the future. Right. And do, do we know much about uh, kind of where the, the passengers are coming from? And that I, I know we talked about this during the pandemic when travel had really stopped for the most part. Uh, but we, t- we talked about U.S. residents having passports and if it was a big deal when Victoria, when there was the idea that Victoria might be skipped over. But d- do we have a better idea on, on where the passengers are coming from? 
I think we see a, a pretty strong U.S. market um, for Alaskan cruises, and those Alaskan cruises stop in places like Victoria, Vancouver, Prince Rupert. Um, but but we do get a lot of global travelers as well. Uh, but I think the vast majority are, are likely North American or, or from the U.S. Um, and, I, you know, maybe that's a better question to ask me at the end of the season once we've seen, you know, 850,000 visitors to the city. Right. Probably. All right. I will mark that one to, to re-ask at the end of the cruise ship season. Um, I understand, too, that that when looking at the schedule, uh, there are a lot of ships that are going to be coming to Victoria specifically between now and October. Is it is it record breaking or are we we're just seeing kind of the return back to those healthy numbers? Well, interestingly, we're going to have less ships in Victoria this year than we did last year, uh, but they're having higher passenger levels. So, you know, while we won't have the most ships that we've ever seen, we will have probably the highest number of passengers, which is uh, a positive trend, I think. And is that is that just kind of how things ebb and flow as far as the numbers, or why would we see not as many ships this year? Well, I think probably some of those ship calls we had last year may be going to other ports as well. So, um that's a good thing. It means the Canadian market is strong in supporting um, those cruise lines that are, are largely focused on the Alaskan trade. Um, but I think it's, you know, the higher passenger number, I think, is the really positive piece to this, um, because it means there's there's a strong demand for the Pacific Northwest, and, and we expect that demand to continue. And you mentioned as well that that people who have been surveyed or comment on this uh, after making a stop, maybe it's just a one-day stop during part of a bigger cruise, but say that they would come back. Do do people get asked or do you get the sense from people, is it uh, concentrated mainly on Victoria and the surrounding area, or is this people coming back and perhaps exploring other parts of the province? I, I think it's the latter. I think we get Victoria sets a really good first impression, um, and it, it, it drives that tourism right through the whole province. So I think, you know, what what Victoria may get that first look, um, it, it could be Vancouver the next time or somewhere else in the province. So, um, yeah, it's it's positive. We all benefit from a good first experience. And when we talk about ways to make it more uh, enticing, I suppose, for the cruise ships, and, and we hear uh, talking about shore power and that allowing cruise ships to turn their engines off, what is being done on that in that regard in Victoria to, to kind of make it, I guess, as, as environmentally friendly as possible and to be more attractive? Yeah, I think, uh, well, it's important to local communities where these cruise lines come into, and it's it's also important to the cruise line passengers. So um, you you talked about shore power. We made that announcement last week after provincial funding that we are progressing with with bringing shore power into our facility at, uh, at Ogden Point, and this is a very positive development, um, very complex project. Um, it's not, you know, I wish we could just drag an extension cord across the dock, but it's it's much more complex than that, and it will take us um, a quite a bit of time working with our partner, like BC Hydro, to, to make it all work. But, um, yeah, it's absolutely part of a sustainable cruise experience. And, and I'd say the great thing about um, cruise tourism is it's very predictable. We know the number of ships. We know the number of passengers. And so we, we can plan to reduce those impacts um, on local communities. So uh, I'm pretty optimistic in the future that we can uh, measure and also mitigate um, those impacts. Uh, and a lot of it's, 
you know, a lot of the innovation that's happening, especially around ship emissions, is happening in the Pacific Northwest. So, you know, these are partnerships between Alaska, Washington State, and BC that are, are pretty fundamental and, and I think setting the prototype for other destinations around the world. Right. And, and you mentioned uh, the announcement uh, about shore, shore power at Ogden Point. Uh, is there a timeline, though? I know it depends on funding from the federal government and all of the partners kind of coming together. But is there a, a, a timeline or a time when, when you think it would be a reasonable uh, idea on when it would be set up? Yeah, I, I've been pretty clear. It's, it's something that isn't going to take months. It's going to take years. And it's not because of the funding. It's actually because of the complexity of the project. So bringing the actual power to the terminal um, through Victoria is a significant undertaking. And then the technical matching with the vessels that we expect to come in the next 10 and 20 years is, is where we're going to work very closely with the cruise line. So, uh, you know, I, I sort of say we're, we're probably in the three-season market till we know, um, you know, until we'll have shore power at the terminal. But, um, you know, that, that could be accelerated. We just we don't have enough information yet about some of the constraints that we may um, be dealing with along the way. All right. And one other thing, and you mentioned this, and I know it's it's always it's good news for businesses and for those in Victoria that, that see that bump in sales because of people that, that come into the community from the cruise ships. But like you said, too, kind of mitigating those factors, if it, if it can potentially become too busy or overwhelming, how do you kind of deal with those or balance those? You know what I, I think we're really going to do a lot of this summer is try to measure and benchmark those impacts in a very you know as 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 an as scientific manner as possible so that we understand the type of impacts that we're dealing with and then be able to plan for them in subsequent seasons. So a lot of that happens already, especially on uh, bus routing, for example, um, and that's you know that's working with local businesses, working with local communities, working with working with the city of Victoria itself to make sure that we have usable routes with as least amount of impact as possible. All right. Well, it is a very exciting day for those welcoming the return of the cruise ship season. Robert Lewis Manning, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for your time. Thanks very much, Jill. Well, how do you find groceries that don't break the bank, that are perhaps healthy, and then turn them into nutritious meals? It could be a tall order, especially given food inflation and how much things are costing these days. Well, there is something now called the Inflation Cookbook. And it's more than just a cookbook. It is an AI-powered meal planning tool. That's right. Artificial intelligence helping you find less expensive groceries and teaming you up with meals. Well, Vanessa Perone is a registered dietitian and joins us now to talk a little bit more about this. Vanessa, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, at first, this seems a little bit out there, but then it does seem to make a a lot of sense in that this can help you not only find those cheaper groceries, but do great things with them. Absolutely. Inflation Cookbook is uh, a nice example of the good that uh, AI can do. Absolutely. So how does it actually work? Do you know? Yes. So it's um, Inflation Cookbook is in the face of, you know, rising prices and inflation um, it's a platform that was brought to us by Skip Express Lane. And it's like we said earlier, it's a 
meal planning tool that is really designed to help Canadians source nutritious foods. So we're, we're scanning um, food prices every week, and it's tracking the top 10 items that are trending up and down in price, and then using the power of AI to take these ingredients and transform them into healthy recipes. So one recipe per day for the following week. So it's actually looking then, is it looking in real time? Because, uh, and, and we've talked about this so many times on the show, that depending on what store you go into, the prices can fluctuate so much. So this is actually getting you real-time information on, say, uh, lettuce or chicken or something. Is, is You can get it for a great deal here, and then here's what you can make with it? Uh, that's right. So we're using, we're tracking data from about 400 items across the country. So what we, we are dealing with averages because there is a little bit of a range across the country, but we're tracking the, the top trends um, and we're going to come up with 10 ingredients every week and we're creating recipes with AI and our in-house chef based on these 10 ingredients. I would imagine, too, that that also then could cut down on food waste in that if you're purchasing things that are specific to a recipe, you're not going to have a whole bunch of extra of something. That's a really good point. And especially when we're, you know, when we tend to think about saving money and, and working the budget, we tend to think about reducing, you know, the cost of the bill. But of course, this planning tool um, is also reducing waste, which is, is, is money as well. We want to, it's just kind of a double-edged sword. We want to think of both ends of it to make the most of our, of our um, bang for our bite, if you will. And when it finds, when it's, like you said, looking at the, the averages or it's finding the prices right, right at across and, and uh, referencing them and, and checking them, does it then tell you, okay, this is this price at this specific store? It won't tell us a specific store, so we're really working on averages so that it's a tool that is accessible for all Canadians. Um, and then if you do find a, that same price lower, then that's, that's fantastic in your, in your specific region. We're using you know, data from the top 10 retailers uh, across the country, and we've really focused on um, fresh and uh, nutritious foods so that we can really get the, the best value with, um, with this tool. And then the recipes that the AI then shares or, or points you to, uh, what about people who are like, eh, I'm not the best cook, maybe don't follow recipes all that great? Are they, are they simple enough that, that anybody can follow them? They are. And so what's really exciting about this platform is so we are using the power of AI, um, but we also have an in-house chef, so we have her creativity and her, her, her vetting of all of these recipes. And so the method really, uh, you know, ensures that we're all Canadians are able to kind of build this into their meal planning practice at home. And then as a dietitian, my, my job is to just double check them and provide any feedback so that we can meet our goal, which is to provide these meals that are nutritionally balanced as well. So it's really for, for anybody. I mean, I, I think most people would say, yeah, I've noticed that the price of food is more and are trying to find ways to, to save a few pennies on food. But it really sounds like it's for anybody that uh, if you're looking at, at, at smart shopping and smart cooking. It's absolutely. And it's uh, what makes it exciting is that and so unique is that it is done in real time every week and it's cross 
across the country. Um, and there's a nice variety in terms of the recipes as well. And the photography um, is really enticing, hopefully to get everyone um, excited about building these ingredients into their, their weekly routine. Uh, now, I know there are always privacy concerns whenever we're talking about AI. Uh, are there any issues with this or, or have anybody has anybody raised any concerns about the fact that this is AI that's that's creating the recipes and doing this? So uh, that's not a concern of ours. And when you visit the website, I encourage you to try it out for yourself. You kind of input your location, um, the number of people that you're serving in the in the home, how many how many servings you would like. You can also put an estimate of your weekly budget, and that is the extent of what you're going to be inputting um, for for the, the the website. And then you'll get the recipes for the following week. And is it something then as well, the more people that use it, uh, kind of the, the more it's going to respond to that and understand recipes that, that people are really drawn to and maybe other ones that aren't as big of a hit? Well, right now we're definitely going to be, um, this is something that we've just recently launched and we're going to be taking in um, some feedback for sure. But the, the recipes are mainly focused around what the trending items are. Um, versus the other way around and um, what the future holds, we'll, we, we'll, we'll see. But we're definitely taking any feedback into consideration. All right. So where can people find this? Or if somebody wants to check this out, what's the, what's the best way? Uh, how do you direct them? Absolutely. So to try Inflation Cookbook for yourself, you go to inflationcookbook.com and all Canadians can visit that and um, learn how to find those healthy foods in the region as well. All right. Well, it's a very interesting way of looking at this. And, and like we said, so many people are trying to find ways to, to make those dollars stretch. So uh, such a great, great initiative. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today, Vanessa. And thanks so much uh, for talking about this. Thank you so much for having me.